welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and guys, today is June the 23rd, 2019. And to be totally honest with you guys, I was hoping to record this episode a few weeks ago, and then maybe I could release it as like a special episode of Trinus Magnus Jabs Reality or something like that, but it the timing of it all just ended up sort of working against me but what I wanted to do was acknowledge June the 23rd 2019 in some way or another even if I didn't release this episode on June the 23rd which obviously I was not able to do even if I don't release this episode on June the 23rd I at least wanted to record this episode on June the 23rd because guys it cannot be overemphasized that, at least for me, June the 23rd, 1989, truly was an important day. All right? And I guess what I mean by that is... Actually, you know what? Maybe maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll circle back to that. Just to kind of give you guys a little bit of my uh, geek history here. I'm a Superman fan from way back. All right, uh, my Superman fandom, and I think I've said this a few times in the past, but it bears repeating that, guys, my Superman fandom runs deep, okay? So deep, in fact, that I don't actually even remember becoming a Superman fan. He's literally been there my entire life. And... I've always had Superman comics, I've always had Superman movies, I've always had Superman action figures, etc., etc., right? The character has always been there. You know, I don't remember a time in my life when Superman was not around. Now, I look back on my, on, on my childhood, and I definitely see the earmarks and early warning signs of early-onset geekness, but... I do think there was a time when, honestly, my destiny could have gone any number of different directions. You know, there's a very real possibility, guys, that I could have grown up to be normal. It's possible. But fate intervened. Now, guys, again, I am a Superman fan from beyond my own recollection. All right, that's that's how far back it it goes for me. But it would be a mistake to say that I grew up loving all comics and all comic book characters and so on and so forth. My affections primarily were restricted to Superman. And the minute something got too far away from Superman is the minute I kind of started losing interest in it. So yes, I had a passing familiarity with other characters like the Flash Green Lantern, Batman, and all of that. But I was only interested in those characters insofar as they, their adventures and their stories, their interactions, or just whatever, crisscrossed paths with Superman. And if they didn't crisscross paths with Superman, it's like, what am I doing here? You know, why should I care? And so, yes, I knew who Batman was. I, I understood, you know, the basic shtick of the character, that he's a superhero who has no superpowers, and yet he does these super things anyway, because that's just how awesome he is. And honestly, I just did not give a shit, you know? And 
in a way, I would even go so far as I did put a token effort into getting into Batman. <clears throat> I want to say I was probably uh, seven or maybe even eight years old. And I rented this video. Do you guys remember those superpowers videotapes that were released in the 1980s that had all those old Saturday morning cartoons organized by theme? So there was a Superboy videotape, there was a Superman videotape, Aquaman, Batman, and all that stuff. Well, I rented that uh, that Batman tape and watched it. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, I didn't wholesale dismiss it, you know? It was definitely a product of its time. Those episodes were. They were definitely products of their time. And I thought that... I don't, I don't want to sound too snobby about it or too pretentious or, 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 or what, but it didn't really speak to me on my level. You know, as an eight-year-old in... I guess at that time it would have been 1988... Um, it just did not speak to me, you know, uh, or 89 or just fucking whenever, um, didn't speak to me, you know, at all. And so the stories didn't, but the characters and the world that they inhabited, that did seem kind of interesting. It wasn't anything that I could put my finger on back then, but there was something about the world in which Batman lives these episodes may not be the greatest thing in the world, but something about the character, something about the car, something about the Batcave, something about Gotham City, those things I did sort of connect to, you know? And we'll never know what might have happened if I'd had access to, uh, like if Batman the Animated Series existed at that time what might have happened, but the fact is, it didn't. We were still a good, like, four years away from the debut of Batman the Animated Series, and so that just wasn't an option. But nevertheless, the... Was it... Maybe it was Filmation? Or... I don't... I don't think it was Hanna-Barbera. I want to say that the... The, the, the uh, Superpower uh, videotapes, those were all Filmation, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. <clears throat> Either way, though, it wasn't a total miss. Now, this is kind of an important thing since Batman never meant anything to me at all when, you know, earlier in my life, whereas this one time watching this videotape, that did mean something. You know, not much. And again, I can't help thinking that the storytelling had a lot to do with it. You know, this kind of 60s or early 70s uh, cartoon show and, you know, what cartoons had to be like back then that part I didn't get into quite as much but there was something like I say that did somewhat speak to me about this character and and all of that and in pretty short order it, guys it, it, this is one of those times I hate to say it because again it, it just sounds like such a pretentious thing to say but it this is one of those times when you really did have to be there. You know, if you weren't there in the spring and then going into the summer of 1989, you can read people's recollections of it. You can watch uh, videos about it on YouTube. But there was an atmosphere and a culture that grew up around uh, Batman 1989 
that if you weren't there to personally experience, I don't think you can fully appreciate what it was really like. And this is not without precedent in pop culture history, you know? My opinion is that, and I don't think I'm alone here, but my opinion is that if you weren't there for Beatlemania, you're never going to understand Beatlemania, you know? You had to be a teenager in order to really, really get it. But I think just being there at all, you would have, maybe you would have had perhaps a differing opinion from it from the mainstream, but nevertheless, you would have at least had a perspective on Beatlemania that was valid if you were older, if you were, you know, basically beyond your teenage years, but you were still alive during the time of Beatlemania, you were an adult during the time of Beatlemania, you're still going to have some kind of a perspective on it, right? And certainly if you were a teenager during the time of Beatlemania, I think, I think you're the one that really gets it. And same thing with with Star Wars later on. And I'm going to be coming back to Star Wars, oddly enough. But same thing with Star Wars. If you weren't there back in 1977, and I wasn't, but if you weren't there back then, you don't... Again, I mean, you can listen to the old-timers, you know, wax nostalgic about it and tell you how important this movie really was. You can do this kind of academic study of what movies were coming out at that time and why Star Wars 77 was so different from them, so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, you weren't there. And so you can't really, you can't really relate to it in the same way that the Star Wars kids of that time related to it, you know? And again, just to kind of tie this all back, I think that same thing kind of holds true for Batman 1989. You really did have to be there to understand how big this was, how important this was. You know, if you weren't there, you know, look, my apologies, you know, but I mean, basically, you got no cred with me. I mean, I'm not trying to be a dick about it, but if you didn't live through it, you didn't understand, you know, what this really meant, how important this really was, then it's not that I don't care, but it's just that I kind of don't care, you know? I, I don't. Sorry, but I, I don't. And the, for one thing, just the marketing of Batman 1989, a lot of people, again, I'm not the first one to say this, but a lot of people have uh, my age and maybe a little bit older and maybe a little bit younger. We remember that marketing campaign. We remember. We remember it, I would say, with a kind of inappropriate level of fondness. But, you know, it does need to be said that this was, I would almost want to compare it in a weird kind of way to like, like a subculture, you know, that kind of appeal that subcultures have when you're, when you're younger, when you're in high school and, you know, you're, you're looking for somewhere to fit in. Well, I would almost compare the marketing of Batman 89 to, in a weird kind of way, to a subculture. Whereas um, with other movies, if you saw it, you saw it, whatever, who cares? But with Batman 89, you were in on something. You know, you you were in the know about something. You understood something, you know, that maybe, maybe outsiders didn't. And that's... I guess a sign of successful marketing because this was the most popular movie I think that came out in 1989, beating out even Indiana Jones on the Last Crusade. This was not 
some obscure art house movie that fucking nobody saw it. Millions of people saw this movie. And so, I don't know. Maybe I'm burying my point here, but there was an appeal to this movie, and maybe this is the better way to say it. There was an appeal to the marketing. There was an appeal to the trailer. There was an appeal to the film itself that you were in on something if if you saw that and you enjoyed it and it was something that you could share with others and so forth. And probably the, the best example of, uh, of, of Batman 89's marketing, this is the thing that everybody remembers, I think, is the teaser poster. Not the theatrical poster, triple underline that part. I'm talking about the teaser poster. And there's a reason I selected that for the artwork for this episode this week. It's just the Batman symbol on a field of uh, this black background. And then at the very bottom, it says June 23rd. That's it. That's all it says. And the thing about it is, I mean, guys, there are great movie posters in all of history, I think. But if you ask me... The teaser poster for Batman 89, that that teaser poster is in a class all by itself. Uh, number one, it tells you everything. And number two, it really tells you nothing or almost nothing. I mean, basically, there are there are two facts that that this teaser poster gives you. Number one, obviously, this is about Batman. Number two. It's whatever this thing is. It's coming out on June the 23rd. But the the kind of slick and gold uh, coloring of the yellow field of Batman's symbol, it just looked all shiny and metallic and so modern for the time. And the Batman symbol itself looked like it was chiseled uh, out of a polished metal. It was all gleamy and shiny and everything. But for me... The, the symbolism that I picked up on, not just the symbol, but the symbolism that I picked up on when I was a kid, just staring, transfixed at that, at that teaser poster, was the fact that I think variant posters were eventually made and then distributed, but at least the original teaser poster, it actually cut the symbol off on the sides, Right? The Batman symbol, the golden black Batman symbol that's on the uh, teaser poster. Go back and look at it sometimes, guys. It's actually cut off on the sides. And the symbolic meaning of that seemed like it was saying that this, this character, Batman, this character is so big and so massive and important, just so fucking epic, that even this gigantic fucking uh, movie theater poster can't contain Batman's awesomeness, his bigness, and just how epic he is. And just, I again, if you weren't there, you, I don't think you're ever truly going to understand, you know? But I, I, this is just one of those formative experiences of my life, just staring up at that poster. And again, it's not that I didn't like comics or, or comic book characters, because obviously I, I, I did, but the the implication of this this teaser poster, this June the twenty third teaser poster, is that this was going to be something that was 
maybe more specifically mine, you know, and sure enough, you know, and we'll get more into the movie itself in just a minute, but I just kind of, I want to tackle this head on and say that the primary mythological construct for the, the generation ahead of mine without question is Star Wars, you know, even if they're not necessarily huge Star Wars fans, the kids that were kids when Star Wars 77 came out, they've got a personal connection to that movie that younger generations, and I would say even older generations, can't really match. You know, you kind of needed to be, number one, you needed to be there in 1977 to really grasp what Star Wars was all about. But specifically, I think you needed to be young. You needed to be a kid or you needed to be a teenager or I would say at the very latest in your early 20s in order for this movie to just kind of grab you by the balls as a fan. Not as a moviegoer, not as somebody who appreciates cinema, but specifically as a geek. You kind of needed to be in that, that younger bracket a little bit in order to grasp the fullness of what of what Star Wars 77 represented for that generation. Like I say, all roads pretty much lead back to star Wars 77 in one way or another. But for my generation, that's not really true. What I find is that for my generation to one degree or another, all roads lead back to Batman 89 and what that meant, the almost in a weird kind of way, the movement that it represented, you know, that this was something for us, you know, and it's not that it's not that I didn't like Superman because, again, guys, I loved Superman, but for as much as I loved Superman, there was a mystique about Batman in general, and I would say specifically about Batman 89 as first this just incredibly well-orchestrated uh, marketing campaign, and then as a movie event in and of itself that spoke to me in a way that even Superman the movie didn't. You know, and again, that's no slight. That is no slight on, on Superman the movie. I love Superman the movie, but Superman the movie didn't turn me into a geek, guys. It just didn't. I mean, again, there's no way to say it without sounding like I'm kind of belittling the movie, and I would never do that, but I was sitting there in the movie theater on June the 23rd, 1989, watching Batman 89 for the first time, and... Again, I mean, there was just this darkness about it. There was this mystique about it. Nothing else out there looked the way that the Batman uh, 89 did. But I would say even before that, with the opening credits, I mean, that Danny Elfman main theme uh, kicks up, and it it was kind of dark, and it was brooding, and it was menacing, and it was mysterious. And it was not necessarily a big, triumphant, heroic uh, main title. You know, it just isn't. You know, there's a 
there's a mystique that goes into the 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 Danny Elfman uh, main theme for Batman '89 that I'd never heard in any movie before. That you know what, this character maybe he's a little scary. You know, Batman maybe he's a little scary. Maybe he's a little dangerous. Whereas Superman is this big, broad, aspirational ideal. You know, this this embodiment of everything that's that's good and pure and noble and majestic. Batman does not represent those values, especially in Batman 89. He does not embody those values. There's a, a vengeance to Batman. There's an anger in Batman. All of those things were sort of implied in in, in Danny Elfman's main theme. And I think the, the movie itself did a pretty decent job of expressing those things, you know, just in, in through the course of the narrative. But I would say that really it was it was there right, you know, right from the start in the opening credits. It just it, it just kind of grabbed me as as this little kid who's sitting there watching this. It just kind of grabbed me and did not let me go until credits rolled. And from that time on, on June the 22nd, 1989, I think my destiny, like I say, it could have gone any number of different ways. But on June the 23rd, 1989, at that point, my destiny was, at that point, chiseled in concrete. I'm going to be a geek for the rest of my life. This is who I am now. I can't be something else. You know, that ship, I could have caught it, like I say, I could have caught it on June the 22nd. Ship sailed on June the 23rd, 1989. And the thing about uh, the movie that there are, look guys, we all bring our own personal baggage to anything, okay? Uh, when you watch a TV show, your life, your history, your experiences, your, your, your perspective, all of these things that define you as a person, right down to your soul, all of these things that define you and make you who you are, go into your, your ideas and your impressions, uh, your, your perspective of what it is that you're watching, you know, your, this TV show that you're watching, this movie that you're watching, this song that you're listening to, just fucking whatever, right? And so for me, I was coming in to Batman 89. Guys, I mean, the full range of my life experiences consisted of going to school. I mean, I, I hadn't really lived very long. You know, I mean, I, I, was, I was a kid. And I hadn't really seen... I mean, I, I, I'd seen Mr. Mom, and but I, it's like I didn't really remember a whole lot about it, you know? There was a point in Mr. Mom where Michael Keaton is talking to, I guess, his wife. He's talking about, yeah, you know, I, I like Halloween. You know, that's kind of fun. But, you know, I did not connect. It's kind of a historical irony in some ways, but I did not connect the guy that's running around in the Batman outfit in Batman 89. I did not connect him to, to Mr. Mom. And there's this scene at Wayne Manor. There's this big party that's going on. And Vicki Vale is searching around trying to find uh, Bruce Wayne. And she actually meets Bruce, and he kind of plays it off. He's, he says, well, I'm not really sure who Bruce is. Well, she's talking to Bruce. And for 
people that were older than me in the audience who knew who Michael Keaton was and knew that he was Batman, that meant something to them. You know, maybe that was kind of a humorous moment for them. But for me as a kid, I had no idea that she was actually talking. She was asking to meet Bruce Wayne as she was talking to Bruce Wayne. And that, I, I just, I did not know that. You know, and again, that just kind of played into this idea of not even just Batman anymore. Even Bruce can be a little bit mysterious, you know, that uh, even he's a little cagey sometimes. And, but if I had to put a thumbtack in the map and say, this is the moment where I was in love with this movie, it was actually right after the, the, the opening credits had ended and then we actually shift into the main movie now there's this establishing shot of Gotham City this big beautiful matte painting and I probably should have looked up who did the matte the matte painting but I honestly I don't know but whoever it is whoever whoever it is fucking deserves an Oscar it's this like I say this big beautiful matte painting it's it's basically uh, the Gotham City skyline from one end to the other there's this big, giant, full moon in the sky that's partially blocked out by the clouds. And you can see all this fog and shit that's just... Um, it's almost like it's swallowing and depressing the city. This is not the, the bright, shiny city of tomorrow that Metropolis represents for Superman. This... Gotham City is a place that, in, in its own... In its own weird kind of way, it's almost like the city itself is possessed by evil. And it's Batman's self-assigned task to purge the city of that evil. And man, he's up against it too. Because just from that opening match shot, you can see that the darkness of Gotham City goes fucking deep. And it was just, that was the moment right there where, number one, I was in lockstep with what Tim Burton was going to do with this movie. Number one. And number two, I was now officially a Batman fan. He hadn't even shown up on the fucking screen yet. And, and, and still, it's like, okay, so this is the world that the guy lives in. I am on board with this. 1,000%. I am completely on board with this. And indeed I was. I mean, you know, you guys... I would imagine you've probably seen the movie, so for me to do like a blow-by-blow blow recounting of the plot and my perspective on it, it almost seems like that's kind of beside the point because, I mean, yes, this is a movie, but as much as anything else, guys, this was a media fucking event. This was, this, th th this was huge, and so for me to go just like point by point through this thing, it almost seems like, it almost seems like I'd be talking down to you guys in a weird kind of way, but... That's that's just the way that I'm that I'm kind of looking at this, but the the abiding takeaway lesson that that I had with this movie, you know, coming out of it was I got something from this movie very different from what it looks like most of the people who saw the movie with me got. I saw it with. Uh, both of my brothers and some of their friends. I mean, my my memory of it is that we went to the mall, June the 23rd, 1989, Lubbock, Texas, and we went to the mall 
we saw the movie there and they came out of the movie everyone else they came out they were all smiling and they were all excited about it and oh my god wasn't it so cool when this happened or oh my god what what about that moment when this other thing happened oh god that, that, that was fucking amazing that was badass oh i love it i want to see this movie again and there was an excitement about it there was an enthusiasm about it but i sensed from the just the reaction that they had to it which was positive don't get me wrong i mean they loved the movie they didn't love it in the way that i loved it they didn't get out of it what i got out of it does that make sense and it actually took me a pretty long time to to get my head around that but what i eventually realized was i am a geek you know i this is who i am now you know and so for me I don't want to be too crass about it and say that, well, this was almost like a religious experience in terms of its personal importance to me. I don't want to be, number one, that sacrilegious about it, number two, that pretentious about it, but this movie had a depth of importance to me that I sensed it didn't have to anyone else. Uh, in, in the group with whom I saw this movie. I mean, again, I'm not trying to, you know, talk shit about them or anything like that. Uh, I'm not trying to insult them or, or, or be rude or, or dismissive or, or anything like that. But I have to emphasize the fact that I got something from this experience of going to that particular movie theater on that particular day to see that particular movie at that particular time that everybody else just didn't. I mean, they had a great time at the movies. That's what it was to them. Whereas to me, this was Tim Burton throwing open the doors to one of the most fascinating characters in all of comic book history, right? This was me having an access point now into Batman for the first time in my entire life. That's what that movie meant to me. Whereas... Again, for the people that I saw it with, if it had been a rock concert, then it would have been a rock concert. Or if it had been a football game, then it would have been a football game. I mean, it was always going to be this thing, you know, uh, this this fun time, this fun experience that they had, you know. And in a certain kind of way, it was sort of disposable. Or at the very least, maybe not disposable. It was fungible, because again, I mean, it could have been a sporting event, or it could have been a rock concert, or it, it could have been any of a number of different things, you know, uh, riding on a roller coaster, you know, it, it could have been anything, you know. It was a movie that they saw that day, and they had a good time with it. Whereas with me, this was, I was tapping into the first time now, you know, for the first time now, into a whole new superhero mythos, a whole different kind of superhero mythos. So, whereas I had this big mythic experience, you know, Grant Morrison might even call it like a shamanic experience. These other guys, again, I love them. They're 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 great guys. You know, they're they're great. But that's not the experience that they had. To them, this was just a fun time at the movies, and then that was it. And the idea of that was, this is something that. I can talk about with people like, you know, cause again, I mean, this was kind of, 
this was kind of like a calling card for a lot of uh, kids, especially my age. Hey, did you see the movie? Yeah, I saw it, but I fell in love with that movie in a way that my peers, for the most part, didn't, you know? Because again, for them, it was just a fun time at the movies, you know? I loved, and still love, Batman 89 in the same kind of way that I think Scott Rifen loves Star Wars 77, you know? There were other people who went to see Star Wars, and for them, it was a fun adventure movie. And that's about a, uh, as much as they got out of it, whereas... And Scott, I don't know if you're listening to this, but if you are and I'm mischaracterizing your fandom of Star Wars, please do correct me. I'm just trying to use you as an example here, rather than call you out on anything. But Scott, Scott Rifen, I think, for him, this was a mythological experience that completely changed his life. And from that time on, he was a geek. You know, uh, Chris Honeywell from Two True Freaks. He saw Star Wars 77 and same thing. For him, this was a mythological experience. And from that time on, he was a geek. Well, I saw Batman 89. This was a mythological experience. And from that time on, I was a geek. And that was really the beginning of me embarking upon, I would say, my first fanboy odyssey. Again, it's not that I didn't like Superman. I loved Superman. But Batman was really the character, and specifically Batman 89 was the movie that kind of unlocked fandom for me, that that unlocked geekdom for me. And so I spent the next, I would say, really couple of years on this sort of Batman odyssey of, of watching TV shows, watching cartoons, reading comics, and immersing myself as fully as I possibly could into not even just Batman that, like Batman as he was best understood in 1989, the totality of Batman as best I could access it back in 1989. And so step one for all of that and I, again, I'm pretty sure I've said this before too, but step one for all of that was getting my grubby little hands on the greatest Batman stories ever told. And one of the things that became very apparent to me as I read the greatest Batman stories ever told is that Batman is not just one thing. You know, he was this kind of urban commando that occasionally had uh, these kind of paranormal or supernatural uh, uh, types of uh, adventures. Some of them were more like hard-boiled crime dramas. Some of them, though, were a little bit more on the fantasy side of things, and that's where he first started off. And then going into the 40s, he got a little bit lighter, and then in the 50s, he was really lighter. In the 60s, he kind of had this... He, he sort of became more of like a swashbuckling kind of figure in in uh, in the comics and then going into the 70s he was uh, he started to become a little bit darker but I would say not quite to the level of where he started off in the 1930s and the 1970s he was more like this sort of costumed crime adventurer you know rather than 
like I say, the urban commando that he started off as. And then going into the 80s, you had the Frank Miller stuff, and then just on and on and on and on. You know, and as much as I loved Superman, you know, Superman didn't really have quite as many passages and movements and development in his character, you know, stylistically, you know. You could draw a pretty straight line between the types of Superman adventure stories that were being published in, I would say, 1941, 1942, and through there, and the t more or less the the types of stories that were being published, I would say, well into the Silver Age. I mean, yes, some fine details are different, but generally speaking, the tone is pretty similar, I would say. Whereas with Batman, I mean, he was all over the map. And I kind of liked the fact that, you know, he had these, these periods in his history that you could dig back to and find perspective on. And maybe you're not getting as much into this 1950s stuff today, but who knows, maybe tomorrow you will get more into it. And so, and in time, eventually, of course I did. I mean, I was a pretty big Dick Sprang fan by the time I was... I would say 10, maybe 11, maybe 12 years old. I just liked Dick Sprang's interpretation of Batman. I enjoyed those stories, don't get me wrong, but there was always something special about a Dick Sprang Batman story that made it a priority. If I could find one and read it, it was a priority to find it and read it. And obviously, in the midst of absorbing all of this different Batman stuff. Of course, there was the 1960s TV show. And again, what what I took from, from this 60s TV show is, number one, this thing was incredibly popular back in its day. Number two, it holds up really well now. But number three, it again illustrates the fact that Batman can be so many different things at different points in time, all of which are equally valid with everything else, that some... I do remember that this was a very popular opinion for people to have in the late 80s and early 90s, that the 1960s TV show was something to be ashamed of. The 1960s TV show was something to be lived down, and all of that. And the fact is, I mean, when I was a kid, I was like, well, you can find comics that, at least in terms of their tone and style, are pretty close with the 60s TV show and predate the 60s TV show. And so I don't really see why this is something that we should apologize for or feel guilty about or, or, or whatever else. And I, I just had a very ecumenical view of Batman uh, back then, just by virtue of the fact that, again, having access to the greatest Batman stories ever told becomes very apparent. You know, Batman has never, ever been just one thing and so number one like i say this gave me a very i think a very good perspective on on batman but it also i think gave me a very good perspective on specifically batman 89 that for as good as that movie might be uh for as much as i fell in love with it on june the 23rd 1989 and love it still even now that's still just one person's interpretation of batman and there are tons of options out there to choose from, you know? And so <clears throat> it would be 
it's really hard for it's really hard for me to ever envision circumstances where I would ever say that's just not Batman you know I can't really picture saying that you know just because of the fact that Batman has been so varied and has had so many different incarnations and interpretations and and representations and adaptations that it's to me it's almost dishonest with the character to say that he cannot be this or he cannot be that and that I think is the the lasting uh, gift that Batman 89 gave to me. Now, excuse me while I get a sip off my water here because I've been running my mouth for it looks like over 40 minutes at this point, so I'm getting a little bit thirsty. Just a minute. You all saw this coming, right? I'm gonna. I'm also gonna. Uh, get a drag off of uh, my vaporizer here. <coughs> a little too much vapor, apparently. <clears throat> anyway, so, moving right along, uh, one of the other things that Batman 89 gave me was a desire not just to read Batman trades like the, like the greatest Batman stories ever told. Also, it made me want to collect Batman comics. And I'm going to be real honest with you guys. I would say that 1989 and just sort of going forward from there was a sort of a weird time to try getting into to Batman comics just because it was just a strange time in his history. You know, this post-Jason Todd, pre-Tim Drake sort of era that that Batman 89 debuted in. It was just a strange point, right? And so here again, I mean, it's impossible to know what would have happened. But what we know did happen was that I didn't really start collecting uh, Batman comics until the summer of 1990. And... I'm pretty sure I've told this story before, but since it bears directly on the subject matter for this episode, I think it's worth repeating here that there, in the spring of uh, 1990, the family move, uh, moved to uh, Houston, right, to Houston, Texas. And indeed, we live there to this day. And, uh, but yeah, so we moved here in the spring of 1990, and... During the summer of 1990, for some reason or, or another, my mom had a yen to uh, take a trip back to Lubbock and uh, just visit some of her old friends and, and all of that, and I ended up tagging along. So it was just the two of us on this road trip, and among other things, we, we stopped off at a, a friend's house. Uh, a, a, a friend that she had back in college. We stopped off at a, a, at a, her college friend's house. And so mom and her friend uh, just kind of hung out and visited with one another. And when you're a kid, what adults normally do is they just pair the kids up together. Well, uh, you guys are going to be hanging out 
together for a while now. And so I never even met this asshole before, but uh anyway, but the uh the, the kid's name was uh, was uh, Jeremy and uh you know, he and I we were just kind of hanging out in his room and I was in love with this kid's room. I mean, his wall I mean, his walls were not even visible anymore under all the different comic book posters and, and movie posters and stuff that he had. He was, I, I would estimate he was probably about a year older than I was. But you know how it is. It's like when you're a kid, when somebody's a year older than you are, they seem so much more mature and worldly than you do. And anyway, so there was that. But he also had uh, a plethora of uh, Star Wars action figures. Uh, he had uh, Star Wars posters he had comic book posters. Uh, he had comic books. Um, it, just tons and tons of shit uh, was going on in his room. And he was also of an artistic bent, right? I've never been able to draw jack fucking shit, guys. But he actually had actual talent. You know, he could... You could describe something to him and he would draw it. And it would look pretty close to... I can't... I don't want to say realistic, but it would look pretty good. Put it that way. You know, I mean, it's drawn, but, and in chalk, but it still looked, you know, I thought really good. And so he was sitting there, he was just uh, talking my ear off about, because he kind of figured out that, you know, I liked Star Wars, but I wasn't crazy about Star Wars. And so he was, he was trying to be polite. He was trying to find a subject that we could talk about. So he asked about Batman because I guess he figured, you know, there's a good chance I'd seen that and probably enjoyed it. And yeah, I talked his ear off about Batman. And here again, this was a kid that was a geek. All right. And I never really met one before. Uh, Everyone else, they were all just, they were normies or they were civilians or they were mainstreamers, you know, just whatever you want to call them. They were not geeks. And so they didn't get into Batman 89 the same way that I did. And I didn't really have an outlet for something like that. I'd never had an outlet like that before. And yet here I was talking to this kid and he got it. He got Batman 89 the same way that I got it. So the conversation turned away from the movie and toward comics. And he asked, well, do you, do you read Batman comics? And I said, no, it's not that I don't want to read Batman comics or I don't like Batman or anything like that. It's just that I've flipped through a couple of comics and it's just, I don't really know what's going on. I don't really understand what's happening with all of this. And it's just, it's kind of hard to get my head around, right? Well, apparently I went to the right guy on the right day because uh, he basically broke it down for me. Everything that had been going on in in uh, Batman's universe from about the mid eighties up to that point in the summer of 1990. So he talked to me about the dark Knight returns, uh, the killing joke. I don't think he'd read Arkham asylum. Maybe that was a little bit out of his price range. I don't know. Uh, goings on with uh, a death in the family. And then the aftermath of that, you know, how Batman came about meeting Jason Todd, how Jason Todd ended up uh, dying Batman's reaction to that. <clears throat> Uh, the arrival of Tim Drake and how all of that stuff played out. And, you know, Tim, he's not Robin yet, but he's in the process of training to become Robin. And he was sitting here, he was just telling me all this stuff. And it's like, oh my, oh my God, dude, that, that sounds fucking awesome. You know, like, wow. So like Burt Ward basically went on to become Nightwing 
And so some other dude becomes Robin, and then you know, I guess he ended up getting crosswise with the Joker's crowbar, so he's not with us anymore. And now this other guy, this this Tim guy, he's he's gonna be Robin someday. And oh man, that sounds fuck that dude. That sounds epic. And he's like, yeah, man, this stuff is great. You you need to start reading these comics because he's probably gonna become Robin any month now. And so you know now's a good time to start reading this stuff. And so. I don't know why, but it was just, I needed somebody to give, to give me that access point. And then once I had it, now I can start reading these comics. And so that night, my mom went back to the mall in Lubbock, that, in fact, that same mall at which I'd seen Batman 89. She and I went to that same mall because uh, we were going to be heading back to Houston the next day. And she wanted me to, I guess, to have something to read in the hotel room or, or I don't know. So we stopped off and I remembered that conversation I'd had with Jeremy and I thought, hey, why not now? We're here. We're at Walden Books. We can uh, pick up a couple of comics and just kind of try getting into this stuff. And so the comic book that I pulled off the spinner rack, and I know I've told this story before, but the comic book that I pulled off the spinner rack was Detective Comics number 618, which was chapter one of a storyline involving uh, Tim Drake's parents called uh, Rite of Passage. That's the name of the storyline. And this was part one of that, right? And it kind of introduced me to Tim Drake. And I mean, just on an archetypal level, I mean, I kind of know who Batman is because I'd read so many Batman comics. I'd seen so many Batman TV shows. I'd seen Batman 1989. So I knew the big picture of who Batman was. And so, you know, he's kind of a reactive character in that story anyway. <clears throat> I'll go out on a limb and suggest that it's probably Tim who carries uh, the majority of the dramatic weight of the Rite of Passage storyline, at least to start with. It does actually shift over to Batman's point of view after a certain point. But then by that point, I'm ready for it, you know? So anyway, so uh, getting into that and also in the process, starting to chase down Batman back issues because that's its own, that was its own sort of thing. I mean, it's one thing to start collecting comics when they're new on the spinner racks, but I could not figure out how to get my hands on the back issues because there's got to be some kind of way of getting back issues, but I just couldn't fucking figure it out. And then one day, my grandmother just kind of said to me in passing, hey, uh, we I've got some errands and stuff that I need to run today, but, you know, a few of my errands are going to take me past a, a local comic book store. Would you like to go to a comic book store? And I just stared at her. It's like, hold on, whoa, 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 back up. You're telling me that there is a store out there where they specialize in selling comic books? She's like, yeah, I've driven by it a thousand times. I mean, I've never been in there, but I've driven by it like a thousand times. Yeah, I mean, uh, it looks like they sell comics in there. So you want to go? I'm like, hell fucking yes, I want to go. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to talk that way to my grandmother, but believe me, guys, in like inside, that's what I'm thinking, right? So I uh, started... Uh, at that point, collecting Batman back issues. So now I'm collecting the new stuff. And then I'm also going as far back in the back issues as I 
as I can. And like I say, I mean, this, <clears throat> this was the Batman Odyssey, you know, this was, this was what Tim Burton intentionally or not created. And all of that started on June the 23rd, 1989. You know, that was the day that I officially became a geek, that this was my inescapable destiny. You know, that maybe, like I say, maybe I could have chosen a different path. Maybe I could have been something or somebody else on June the 22nd, 1989. But on June the 23rd, 1989, my destiny at that point was set in stone. And it's been 30 years. And I don't know, just, man, what a ride. What a ride. It's because of Tim Burton that I have all of the comics that I own today. It's because of Tim Burton that I fell in love with uh, collecting movie scores uh, for uh, all of my favorite movies. In fact, you know what? I'll go out on a limb and suggest to you guys that it's because of Tim Burton that you guys are sitting here listening to me podcast today. That's what Batman 89 ultimately led me to. So, happy 30th birthday, Batman 89. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me for this time. So, bye everybody. I'll see you next time. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, 
All feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.